Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled you could join us today. We are going to be talking about a community up north here in Minnesota that's doing some really cool things, and they've got a, a conference coming up on May 12th we'll hear about as well. But for those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have a little bit of everybody on the show, from those diagnosed to family members, to advocates, to a variety of professionals and inspirational uh, thinkers and talkers to help us live better with dementia. My own mom had dementia for 30 years, so I get it. And I know how many wonderful life lessons there are wrapped in this really strange package called dementia. I do want to give a shout out to the Mark Arneson band. They let us use their song Clarion Call for our opening music. And I just love that song. So feel free to download that on any of your favorite music platforms. And if you haven't checked out Dementia Map, please do and please share it with others. This is a, a, a fairly new resource that we developed along with Dave Widrick, who has the Memory Cafe directories for five countries. We have about 150 different categories people can search. There's a wonderful blog, um, terms, there's a calendar of events, and it's growing all the time. So go to DementiaMap.com. It's really easy to get your resources listed on there, um, and it's very easy to be able to find what you're looking for as well. Now, I also do a lot of support work. And so two of them I want to mention. One is Arthur's Memory Cafe, which is sponsored by Arthur's Senior Care. And we are actually one of the original uh, first memory cafes in the US. This was a, a, a concept from overseas that they shared with us. And we're still grow, going strong today. The only thing is we're doing it virtually. And so anybody in the world can join us. We meet on the second and the fourth Wednesday of each month at one o'clock central. So that would be two Eastern, noon mountain time and 11 a.m. Pacific time. Also, I'm working with uh, Brookdale North Oaks, and we do a Caregiver Connect program, which is the last Wednesday of the month at 10 a.m. Central. That is an in-person event, and they also provide respite for your loved ones. So they have activities uh, and therapists come in uh, to work with them during that hour while we talk. So if you're interested in either of those, just reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com. And then, of course, I still want to mention MODS Awards. If you are doing great work in the industry, uh, for an individual, you can win $5,000. And for an organization, up to $25,000. And that is for work you've done. Not what you're going to do, but it's just a kind of pat on the back. So go to modsawards.org. They also have MODS Ventures, where they have three key scenarios um, that they feel are needs and they're giving seed money out for that 50 to a hundred thousand dollars so check out modsventures.org 
Let's see, what else do I want to mention here? Oh, the All's Authors just had them on the show. So check their episode out. They are doing some really cool things. It's amazing what they um, what they were doing during COVID. And so they have really elevated their game. So go to allsauthors.com. We are going to hear from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. And then we'll be right back. I love the footbar walker. And let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest. There are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients, or therapists adapting to client and caregiver-specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the Footbar Walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day, and don't forget, if you can't do it, adapt it. Okay, well, it's time. We are back and we are going to be talking about how local passion turned to action with a community in St. Cloud, Minnesota. And I'm honored to have Dr. Patrick Zook with us. He was a family physician for 40 years. And in 2019, Dr. Zook took on the public health issue of community dementia care and founded the St. Cloud, Minnesota-based nonprofit, Central Minnesota, Dementia Community Action Network, known as DCAN. They are a resource center uh, that has two paid staff and two volunteer physicians. And Dr. Zook has been evaluating clients and care partners, either living with dementia symptoms or who are just worried about their risks since 2021. DCAN's mission is to improve access to quality dementia care throughout their community. So Dr. Zook, I am so thrilled to have you with us today. I I love what you're doing and I can't wait to have you share that with our audience. But first, I always ask every guest if they've been personally touched in their own family or circle of friends with dementia. Well, certainly in my case, that's true. Uh, Both my parents uh, died after living with dementia for several years. And um, that was 800 miles away in Cleveland, Ohio. And my brother and two sisters had to deal with it. And I unfortunately didn't really deal with it much. I was all, all the way here in Minnesota. So I, I lived through that and have my regrets about that. But um, I think I'm more motivated as much by um, 40 years of practice and seeing what it does in families. And, uh, you know, I'm a family doctor and I'm used to family systems and I see how difficult it was for families to deal with. I I can understand that. And, you know, being a long distance uh, care partner is really a difficult thing to do on multiple levels. One is just the time and the energy. And sometimes families don't really let you in when you're long distance or they don't really value your opinion. I know I found that in in my own family in different situations, not so much with dementia. 
And when I sold real estate, I saw that a lot as well. And um, so it, it, it is a tricky dynamic. I think things like this, like uh, being able to meet virtually has really changed things a lot though. I know even when my mom was dying, I didn't miss a beat. I mean, I was there for the last rites and all kinds of stuff um, through, through video, which I never would have been able to do because I, I was traveling when she was, when she was actually actively dying. So I appreciate where you're coming from. And I look forward to you kind of explaining how, how did your, your group, the Central Minnesota Dementia Community Action Network, known as DCAM, uh, how, how did that start and, and why? Why don't you give us, you know, the, a little bit of background on that? Well, I was um, local medical society president for umpteen years because nobody else wanted to do it. And so uh, I got us off high center one year with a, a public health program. And the first one we did was back, I think, in 2013 on uh, whooping cough immunizations. <clears throat> we ran that for a year. We got a small grant from Central Care Foundation, and um, we did pretty well. And the idea was to engage our physician members as much as anything. We did another one a, a couple of years later on uh, controlled substance prescribing, which is a big issue uh, six or seven years ago when we did it. And then a third issue, uh, Kathy Gilride called me over from Central Minnesota Council on Aging, uh, me and Dr. George Chapoyster met with her and she said, we have a problem. We're not being found. Our, our dementia resource people aren't being found by physicians. And can you help us out? And so one thing led to another. We decided to look at the problem, and we discovered several gaps in our community's dementia care system. There was no such system formally, but we envisioned that the whole system had so many gaps that really needed to be addressed. So one thing led to another. We had um, several meetings over a couple of years. We had four large meetings. We had a total of 80 participants. We probably rarely had more than 40 or 45 in any one meeting, but we did strategic planning, looking at how, what's the extent of the problem, who is being hurt by it the most, and how do we relieve that? And after lots of planning, lots of other smaller meetings, many, many meetings, we decided that um, a dementia center of excellence in town would be the best solution. And that's how we got on the idea of a, a dementia resource center, which uh, got us started that way. Well, that is wonderful. I, it, wouldn't that be nice to have one of those in every town? I, well, it is so needed. <laughs> funny you should say that. Um, you know, other states have figured out and have a, a dementia center uh, organization. Uh, for instance, Wisconsin has 42, I believe they're up to now. Uh, and their model isn't exactly what I would choose, but they have 42 clinics around the state and a couple across the border in Michigan where they do dementia care. And you don't have to travel too far in Wisconsin to get to one of them. And it's not the model I would choose, but the point is it can be done. And it's done in Florida where they have 13, at least last time I checked 13, they probably have more now, but very large, very high level of dementia care um, in at the end of the year, they go to the legislator and they say, we're this much dollars short. Legislature takes out their checkbook and evens them out every year. Their state has decided to take care of that. So the concept of uh, dementia centers around the state of Minnesota is in our mind every day. It's in our long-term 
uh, planning, uh, but it's very much what we're planning to do. If you don't plan to scale up, you're having a hard time keeping it going. So that's our plan to scale up. Well, how does your work differ from the standard dementia care if you just go into your regular doctor? Um, oh. Is there dementia, I should say, is there dementia care going to your regular doctor first? Because I think some people would argue with that. Most people do that. In fact, most, and I would say half of our um, referrals have come from uh, advanced practice providers, <clears throat> the other half from physicians. Not actually half, there's a fair number of people who self refer to mm -hmm. our uh, office, our Dementia Resource Center. But, um, you know, we, we get referrals from physicians in town and nearby, but they're starting to come from further and further out. Um, tell me again what you're you were looking for in the answer though? Oh, I wanted to know how you were different than just going to your regular physician for dementia care. So people ask us that all the time. You know, I've already been to XYZ big medical center and had a dementia evaluation and we've looked at those. We've, mm -hmm. we've looked at those. And I think getting that is a good start. It's, it's really important to know what it is, what it isn't, mm -hmm. what drug you need, if you need a drug, that's the what. We ask why. Why does this patient, not every patient, this particular patient, why does this particular patient have cognitive dysfunction? And there can be many, many reasons why. There can be many contributing reasons why. And the summation of all those may be a, a diminished MOCA score of 20 or 25. Um, people are getting by, but... Um, they uh, they still have uh, symptoms that they're troubled by and it's interfering with their daily living. But we have found that if we go through a list of uh, risk factors and we look at the ones that are modifiable, not all of them are, for instance, your age, uh, but even your genetics, which you might consider set in stone, we can, with proper lifestyle modifications, we can alter your body's expression of your genes. You can have an ApoE4 gene or two and overcome that in some cases by how you live and your health behavior and so forth. So we look at risk factors and uh, risk factor amelioration. In other words, we ask why. In each particular case, we ask why. And the why is very important and oftentimes uh, people are surprised by some of the contributors that they're not familiar with. And um, it's a little too early. We've started about a year ago. We've seen some positive results, but you know our numbers aren't up there yet to make any claims. We model ourselves after Dr. Dale Bredesen's uh, Bredesen Protocol. And you've probably heard of him in California. And he's had over a thousand patients go through his program and many of them, particularly those early in the course of their cognitive dysfunction, uh, many of them have reversed their symptoms. Now, it doesn't mean he cured them. It doesn't mean he changed the pathology in their brain. He merely reduced their symptoms back to where they were maybe a year or two ago. And maybe that was when they didn't really have any symptoms that they know, knew of. Um, but getting the concept of multiple risk factors, many of which are amenable, many of which can be uh, improved on, 
And getting that into a patient's knowledge base is a bit of a challenge. But, you know, people are ready for this. They've been told, I'm sorry, your mom has dementia. There's nothing we can do. Come back in a year. And it breaks their hearts. They want to do something. And they're ready to do something. The ones who've been to the big XYZ medical center has said, well, all they said was eat good and exercise. They didn't really tell me what to do. Um, and they're looking for so much more. So I think what big medical center does, the what, what's the diagnosis? What isn't the diagnosis? What, if any drug to use? That's important. That's a good, that's 25% of what patients and families want and need. The other yeah. 70%, the other 70 or 75%, that's where we come out. Well, you know, I'm going to... Um... I'm going to make a couple of comments. One is, I, I think they are good at doing that, but I one of the things I don't think they are good at doing is saying that this, this diagnosis could change because families get really frustrated when I was told it was this and now it's that, and now I'm here, you know, after typically a two to three year period of even just trying to get the first diagnosis out. So I think they could help by preparing people for that. The other thing I wanted to have you mention, you mentioned the MOCA score, and some of our listeners might not know what that is. So do you mind letting them know what that scale um, stands for and what, what a normal range is and, and how it's useful? Well, MOCA, MOCA, <laughs> it turns out it stands for other associations, which I would think they'd want to change their association abbreviation or name, but um, Montreal Cognitive Assessment. It's a fairly standard score that you can attach a numerical score governing several parameters of cognitive function. And it's fairly standard. There's others that are similar. And in fact, even have the same total of 30 points as perfect score. Um, but it's, it's commonly used in parlance to um, describe how far along somebody is in their cognitive dysfunction, giving it a number. Now, if you know one person with dementia, you know exactly one person with dementia. They're all, each one is unique. There's no two that are exactly alike. There are similarities and so forth, but each one is unique. Okay, wonderful. And then you also mentioned about being able to change genes and you, you talked about one and if you can let people know what that gene was and, and you know, why it has been so scary to so many people when they hear they have it um, and, and then, you know, dive into, again, we'll dive in a little bit more as to, you know, how you can maybe get that under control a little bit and even think. Well, you know, when, when we talk about genes, we think of one to one, like one gene causes one thing, but it's nothing like that. It's way more complex than that. I think this is where artificial intelligence is going to enter medicine permanently and take a permanent position because you cannot balance all this in your head. It can't be done by mere mortals like me. So, um, but if you have a gene, the, the gene doesn't just give you dementia. The gene, the ApoE4 gene governs dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of functions in your body, everything to do with from fat metabolism to all sorts of other things. It, it's not just dementia, yes, dementia, no. It's way more complicated than that. And you can suppress a gene's expression by how you live your life. You can mm -hmm. suppress that. You can even suppress, you know, you get a, a one or two uh, copies of that allele and you can get a double dose, which statistically your risk for dementia goes up into the 80% plus 
category, at least that's what they say. But even those, there, there are cases where um, people uh, fend off the uh, symptoms of dementia, even with the double dose of the ApoE4 gene. There are other genes, the presenilin 1, presenilin 2, and others which are going to become common in the dementia parlance before long. But there'll be a whole battery of genes, not just one or two, there'll be a whole battery of genes. And there are several associated genes. In other words, they're not causative, but they all can stand to contribute a little bit here and a little bit there. And that's where the computer and artificial intelligence will have to help us out. Okay, great. Now, you, you, know, you talked about risk factors. What's the most common risk factor you think people could just kind of wipe out if they really wanted to? In a word, sugar. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we villainized fat all these years. And my cardiologist friend still, you know, won't eat an egg yolk which my nutritionist experts say, you know, don't, don't worry about that. You know, um, and, and sugar is way more of a problem. If you don't eat excess sugar, if you don't have excess starches, which turns to sugar, fat isn't as much of an enemy as we made it out to be. Uh, humans are able to handle normal amounts of saturated fat. And in fact, in, um, native populations that only eat whale blubber, uh, they were amazed that their cholesterol numbers and coronary artery disease was as good as it was. Well, it's because they don't eat a lot of sugar. At least they used to not eat a lot of sugar. And, and before they started eating Western diet with chips and candy bars and stuff, um, they, they did fine coronary artery wise. Mm -hmm. So Fat in your diet doesn't always equal constricted uh, coronary artery disease and heart attack like we were taught. It's only with the uh, excess sugar and starch in your diet, lack of exercise, extreme stress, social isolation, and all the other common risk factors, untreated sleep apnea. Those risk factors give us our coronary artery disease uh, incidents that we have. I think the reason coronary artery disease has diminished uh, in terms of incidence has largely to do with diminished smoking. I think that has a lot to do with it. And I know the pharmaceutical companies will claim that it's from the use of statins, but you know, statin indications were written for people much younger than me and my colleagues in my age group, you know, people over 65, most of the studies didn't have people 65 and older, some did but smaller in numbers and the data is not as secure. But um, one of the biggest risk factors we find is over medication with medications that have a strong anticholinergic burden. And most people say, what in the world is that? Well, it's exactly what you don't want. People are taking medicines that have that side effect that works against what your brain's trying to do when it's trying to not have cognitive dysfunction. So, um, and we find people on five or six strongly anticholinergic meds where alternatives do exist and haven't been tried. And these are people who've come from the ivory towers of uh, neurology evaluations um, and passed through uh, taking six strong anticholinergic meds that have alternatives. And uh, we slowly try to encourage the primary 
uh, care person to uh, make adjustments. Mm -hmm. yeah. You mentioned other risk factors. I think sugar is a big one. And, and there's a whole spectrum of sugar. You know, people think, well, do I have diabetes or not? Well, it isn't that easy. There's a, there's a whole spectrum of sugar problem. Mm -hmm. And it starts with insulin resistance. It probably starts even before that. But it starts with insulin resistance. So you do the blood test for sugar. You do it fasting, and it's below 126. So we say you don't have diabetes. They do a random sugar, and it's below 200. Well, you don't have diabetes. You know, so the criteria that says you're diabetic is sort of the end point. I mean, mm -hmm. for years before that, you went through insulin resistance and variable sugars. Your sugars bounced up and down and up and down. And the more widely they swung up and down, the more you got pushed into insulin resistance until one day your hemoglobin A1C pops above 6.5 or your fasting sugar pops above 126 or your random sugar pops above 200. And finally, we call it diabetes. But that's after many years of damage, damage to the proteins in your body, particularly brain. Sugar plus protein in your blood vessels and your brain is, does damage. Advanced glycation end products, they call them all sorts of things. But sugar in excess in your blood actually combines with protein to damage the protein and damage the function of the protein and very important ones in your brain and every one of your blood vessels in your body can suffer from that. So sugar is probably the biggest issue and hard to give up. You know, the, the ice cream ritual be between <laughs> supper and bedtime is a Minnesota tradition, I guess. So um, that's hard to give up, but uh, it's more than that. It's, I see people in the summer, skipping lunch and stopping for an ice cream at the Dairy Queen. And I know they're not having any protein or anything to slow the slug of sugar ramming into their liver uh, and all the swing in the sugar that's going to cause. Turns out that most adults, it's about half of adults, and some people say more than half, are insulin resistance. In other words, on that spectrum already leading towards diabetes more than half. Wow. And wow. That, that's astounding to me. And that, that's a huge problem. I would say very closely behind medication uh, use and sugar comes untreated sleep apnea. Oh my gosh. Sleep apnea is very common and people know they have it. They just don't wear their CPAP. So for two or three hours every night, their oxygen dips low. Their brain is being damaged by hypoxia, low oxygen every night for two or three hours. This is a crisis. It's like, wait a minute, red flags, alarms, bells. We have to do something. Maybe surgery, maybe whatever it takes, a pacemaker in the back of your throat. Maybe that's what you need. Something to, to not let you have low oxygen for two or three hours every single night. You know, how do you, how do you evaluate individuals that come in for all these risk factors? Is it, I mean, <laughs> I mean what is it surveys? Is it a consultation? Is it tests? What, what is it? Uh, well, and how long does it take? No, <laughs> it takes a long time. Mm -hmm. So um, we've sort of perfected our system. So our system starts with somebody calling in for referral. Tammy, who's our care navigator and educator, will schedule an intake visit. And in the intake visit, she'll tell them, this is not a cure. 
this is not, you know, you drive through, stick out your arm, we give you a shot and you just keep on your merry way. This isn't, you can just keep eating whatever you want. This is hard. This is going to require you to make some changes and work at this for the rest of your life. And those of faint, faint of heart, that we're just counting on a miracle drug or some kind of a box. We put them in and turn on the current and they get better. Uh, they, they just don't come back beyond that. But I can't remember anyone that has gone through the intake that wasn't ready for the full evaluation, which we do sometime later. After we do a complete chart review, you know, a complete chart review, we get to do it online now mm -hmm. instead of the piles and piles of telephone book size charts uh, and paper, which takes hours. We can do it much quicker with a computer. So we, we've uh, achieved access to the main uh, computer system, the EPIC system here in the Center Care Health that we have here in St. Cloud, Minnesota and Central Minnesota. And we go in there and it sometimes takes me two hours to get through it all because sometimes it's very complicated. And I don't see how you can do dementia care without complex medical analysis. You need the viewpoint from the kidney, from the heart, from the brain, from the skin, from connective tissue, from autoimmune. You need all of that. And if you're only focused on neurology, if you're only focused on cardiology, if you're only focused on kidney or derm or autoimmunity, you're, you're going to miss something. Mm -hmm. You need the generalist viewpoint, the complex care, functional medicine viewpoint. And it's critical. When we put it together, we find unusual things. And um, some of those things have been fairly dramatic. And the other thing is, I'm not sure how much people are getting examined. I found two people with enlarged livers that didn't know they had enlarged livers in the past year. Well, it's not hard to feel an enlarged liver. I mean, it's, it's part of routine care. Mm -hmm. but, but we sit in note after note after note, normal abdomen, liver and spleen not palpable, same, same text over and over. So uh, it, it requires a thorough evaluation and the chart evaluation takes an hour and a half on average. And sometimes the one I worked on last night, I did two separate sessions of almost two hours to finally get the information. And I wind up looking up certain things. Mm -hmm. Like, I've never seen a case of cobalt toxicity, but you probably don't remember the cobalt used to be in beer thing mm -hmm. that years ago and caused problems. But uh, so I had to look stuff up in the midst of that. And so by the time they get scheduled for a three hour initial evaluation with uh, Tammy and me, uh, we've done all that. And Tammy's eval takes an hour and a half, my chart review at least an hour and a half. And then our, our uh, visit with them takes usually three hours that we do the initial evaluation. We type up a five or six or sometimes seven page report, which has 15 or 20 diagnoses or impressions, 15 or 20 recommendations and some specific recommendations for the client, for the person and the caregiver, aim particularly at them, that we get them to agree to before they leave. We, we are, um, where we work is donated by CentraCare. And so because we have that uh, capability, we are not a lot, CentraCare is not allowed to feather their own bed with tests that they profit from. So we're not allowed to order the tests unless it's from a non-centricare 
entity which doesn't exist <laughs> for 50 miles. So, uh, so our recommendation is to the primary care uh, clinician to order the test. And we'll make very specific recommendations for x-rays, uh, you know, uh, MRIs, uh, consultations, and some specific lab tests. They do the test, hopefully. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. The patient comes back to see us with the results, and then we go to the next step and decide what we need to do beyond that. So clarification. So Centricare doesn't have regular physicians that people would visit them. I'm thinking, or is it a, is it a hospital type thing or, or cause you're saying you're sending them back out to, to, you know, somebody outside the system. So I just, I want to get clarification on that. Well, Centricare is the major health player in town. So, mm -hmm. you know, and they've done a fabulous job of organizing clinics. Uh, I don't know how far out they go, even down to Wilmer. Now they have a Caris Health down mm -hmm. in Wilmer and a, a patient population of, I think, 300,000 or so. All the patients that we see that come from within 15 or 20 miles are center care patients. Okay. Okay. I just yeah. wanted to, <laughs> that's just the way were, it is. Yeah. When you said you were referring them out, <laughs> I'm like, well, if they're there, then do they have to go out of this network? So that's what I was getting confused at. And yeah. I just wanted now we've, we've seen, we've seen clients from St. Paul and Alexandria and Duluth area. I mean, so they come from where they come from. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, I have to say that I really like that you're digging into the charts deep and doing that overall review. Cause I can't tell you how many families I hear from going, why didn't they catch that? It's in my chart. And families don't always know what they need to tell you. And they don't always know all the detail of their chart either. As an outsider looking in, that's a huge relief in and of itself that you're starting at ground zero. And then coming back with all these findings and recommendations is really cool. What if someone's already working with, with somebody who, you know, at a big medical center and they're coming to you now, what happens then? I mean, do you all work together? Does it, does it get complicated? I'm sure insurance has stuff to play in, in all of that as well. I'm not sure if you're aware of the politics in medicine, how a specialist in an ivory tower who's been a neurologist for 20 years would look towards a family doctor in a small town in mm -hmm. outstate you know, their opinion, I mean, in public, it's like utmost respect and congeniality. <clears throat> but I, I'm pretty sure they're thinking, well, they're a good place to oh, find a place for them to play cards and, you know, stuff like that. You know, they're, they're not thinking it's serious medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm not sure they would take too kindly to my suggestion that maybe they should do a test that they failed to do, that they failed to do a SED rate. And somebody mm -hmm. who's developed dementia suddenly, they definitely need a sed rate and they need a uric acid. And they'll say, well, uric acid, that's just for gout. Well, no, it's not. Read Dr. Perlmutter's Drop Acid, the new book he just released this year, and you'll learn what uric acid is and it needs to be done. And they'll say, well, I haven't ordered those in years. You know, we took them out of the chem profile years ago. Uh, well, now you need to start doing them again. But mm -hmm. that's brand new. It wasn't taught in medical school. It wasn't taught in medical school last year, mm -hmm. but it's new since last okay. year. And yet it need, it's very important. It needs to be considered. Uric acid damages 
your blood vessels. It does damage to your blood vessel, just like sugar does, only worse. And it's endothelial. It's the same part of your tiny, tiny blood vessels, the inside layer, the endothelium that it damages. The same uh, lesion that COVID does. COVID goes after the endothelium of your tiny blood vessels in 40% of the people who catch COVID of any level. Okay. Um, what's the, what's the, you said SED test? What's that one? So, oh, SED rate. It's an inflammation test. Okay. Okay. Uh, ESR, erythrocytic uh, sedimentation rate. An old test. They even did it when I was in medical school. <laughs> okay. Well, and we hear, that's something I think the public does hear a lot about is inflammation in dementia, you know, that there there's, it's definitely out there, but I, I think so many times with families, you know, they go to the doctor and they just assume that everybody knows what they're doing. And especially when this is in the news so much that everyone is educated in it. And as they go on their journey, again, what I hear from people all the time is, I'm bringing information to my doctor on resources that I've found and questions that I have. And, and I know, uh, uh, I'm sure a lot of doctors don't like patients going to Dr. Google, you know, to bring information in and are, are offended by that. But I think there's a lot of good stuff out there along with a lot of goofy stuff as well. Um, well, that's, that's the problem. And I think <laughs> most of the specialists in the big ivory tower would say you probably went to some less than credible practitioner mm -hmm. of some nondescript type that they look down upon. And mm -hmm. however, some of those <laughs> practitioners are pretty smart and they're mm -hmm. actually looking at the modern data coming out that says mm -hmm. that this or that thing may be helpful. And what are you going to do about it, Dr. Jones or Smith or whoever you are? Uh, well, if I don't know about it, it must not be good. Mm -hmm. That's kind of their viewpoint. If I haven't heard about it, it must not be good or credible. End of discussion. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of that in the in the field of dementia and just healthcare in general, and well, in a in a lot of different industries. You know, it's just kind of set up that way. If you have a 20 minute office visit, mm -hmm. how long does it take you to say there's nothing we can do? Come back in a year, less than 10 seconds. But to go through all the stuff we go, go through takes up to seven hours. So which do you think happens? Yeah, it's so important to to get to the bottom of this stuff and to educate people along the way as to what's going on and, and being open minded. Like you said, when you've met one person with dementia, you've met one, you know, there isn't a, okay, you have this, we're going to go ABC, and you're going to be fine. It, it doesn't work that way, because we all have so many different things going on in our own body and our, our own environments. And personalities. And I mean, you can put in so many different um, bucket lists there that can change how symptoms are going to happen. Full disclosure, mm -hmm. I didn't know what I know now when mm -hmm. I retired in 2017. I wish I knew well before then what I know now. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, I, I didn't learn that, but a lot of it just wasn't written then. Yep. And, and a lot of this has come out. And I mean, 90% of what we know about dementia has come out in the last 10 or 15 years, 90%. And the first 10 years, nobody believed what they said. Yep. You know, there, there are many stories in medicine where somebody came up with some new idea, like washing your hands before you do a delivery. Mm -hmm. You know, you've probably heard that story enough. 
And the guy said, no, you guys got to wash your hands. You know, the midwives over here, they wash their hands and hardly any of their <laughs> deliveries die of puerperal sepsis, you know, septic shock after delivering a baby. And th this Edelweiss figured it out, said, well, maybe I should wash my hands too. They would come in right off the street mm -hmm. handling horses and do the delivery without gloves, I mean, without washing their hands. I mean, oh, my goodness. And, and, and he was almost drummed out of medicine before mm -hmm. finally somebody did studies and proved it. And then everyone looked around and smugly said, well, we knew it all along, you know. Oh, yeah. And that's just one. I mean, there are many stories like that, but um, where people were drummed out of medicine and considered charlatans and all sorts of terrible names. But uh, because it was new, it was different. You know, we mm -hmm. take great comfort like NASA in doing the checklist, the same, the same, the same exact everything, the same, the same. That's comfort in not missing something. I get that. But sometimes you have to be an open minded enough to accept that maybe something new and innovation is better. And, you know, people don't take kindly to innovation if they've been preaching and teaching for 20 years, mm -hmm. something that's different, you know. Yeah, that's one thing I kind of try to pride myself with Alzheimer's Speaks is, is just listening to all the different things that are out there because, you know, I want to bring um, potential solutions and resources to people so that they can choose for what's going to work for them and their family, because we're, we're all different and we all have different belief systems and um, financial capabilities. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But, I, you know, I, I look at um, just how much music plays now. And I mean, I would love for the day to come when a doctor could write a prescription for music for people with dementia and not just dementia, but just mental health in general. You know, it has such a huge effect. And yet, you know, has been poo-pooed for years and years and years. And now there's studies that are, you know, proving more and more. But boy, it takes a long time to get those things in play. And well, because the, the, the specialists in the ivory tower, you know, thinking about molecules and mm -hmm. presenilin one and all the genetic, I mean, they think that's just, oh, just go do your music thing, you know, just yep. dismiss it, you know, as no big deal. Uh, but if you look at all of our recommendations, there's hardly any one of our patients that gets out without recommendation number 18 or 19. Uh, reconnect with your musical past. Mm -hmm. uh, get back into the church choir. I know you forget the word sometimes, but I'm sure they'll take you back in. Mm -hmm. Reconnect with your guitar lessons or maybe switch to mandolin and learn a new uh, stringed instrument. Uh, and uh, get back. And so we've, we've recommended, these are people married 50 and 60 years. So we're giving them advice that they have um, dance time every afternoon at two o'clock. So they'll have some tea and maybe a, a low carb snack. And they put on their 60s music, their favorite, and, and dance around a little bit, you know. And even if you have to dance in the chair, you swing your arms and move. And it's it's amazing how people do respond to music. And a lot of them have just sort of gotten away from it because they don't play to the super level that they were before. And who cares? You know, yep. uh, your loved ones, they just like to see you play the harmonica or whatever it is. You know, they don't care, you know, if it's good or bad. They they want to see a smile on your face when you play, you know. Yeah, it really is getting down to the basic level of what joy is. And we've 
you know, as we grow up, we've packaged it to have to be this big flashy thing and this thing of perfection. And, you know, if that's one thing my mom taught me, like I, I don't sing because I have a horrible voice and I'm the first to admit it, but I love to sing. I'll sing in the car, I'll sing in the shower, I'll sing alone. Um, and I'll never forget one day we were on vacation and I remember my dad just going to my mom, can you make her stop? Because <laughs> I, I, was, I was singing in the car and that stuck with me. But as my mom, and my mom was always a beautiful singer in the choir and stuff. And then with her dementia, she still liked to sing. And as it progressed, like you said, she forgot the words, but she could still hum and her arms and her feet would start going and she was still engaged. And so we went from being able for her being able to sing and, and dance standing up next thing, you know, we're dancing in the wheelchair, then we're dancing, sitting still with the arms. And then we got down to just dancing with our pinkies, you know, it was just really subtle, but it was so intimate and so connective. The specialists are thinking, oh, what good is that? You know, yep. what good is that? They're, they're thinking, you know, I do drugs, you know, yep. I do MRIs, you know, mm-hmm. I do PET scans, you know, you're just dancing, you know. Yep. And, but when you dance, your happy hormones, your oxytocin, your other happy, their BDNF pouring out, you're, yep. you're administering, self-administering several drugs that help your brain much, much more than any of the pills. Yeah. I had, I had one friend and their parents, one had dementia and the other was blind. And every morning when they would pop out of bed, they would dance to the (laughs) kitchen to put coffee on and they would dance every night before they went to bed as well. And that was just their ritual of, of connection. And I think people forget the importance of just touch too, you know, um, and so there's so many cool things that we can do that are that are non-pharma. And granted, there's some things where you're, you're going to need some drugs and stuff. But um, you know, I, I like, I, I really do like your approach. Now, do you get people? Because I could see this happening. Let's say I bring you know my spouse in, and we're worried about him. Blah 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 blah. And then he gets his review, and then I'm thinking. <laughs> Well, what can I do? Because I could be next, you know, do you get people that, that think that who really aren't having any problems at the, at the moment, but think, Hey, Absolutely. I can get on we, with this too. We do preventive evaluations mm-hmm. and our preventive evaluations take just as long as the other ones. Mm-hmm. So we've done several of these where people do not have any signs or symptoms mm-hmm. of dementia. We'll do a baseline MOCA or similar tests. And mm-hmm. besides the MOCA, we do several other tests as mm-hmm. well, just so you know. But we've done several preventive evaluations, found a couple of things that they could tune up. Quite often, we're preaching to the choir. These are people who, you know, they're sort of proud of what they're doing and so forth. And they do set a good example for their family. Uh, And we found a few things in among them that uh, will help their health long term. But um, we we expect that at least half of our clients will be people wanting to prevent dementia. And once America takes dementia seriously into heart and really believes in it, you know, most 40 year olds don't believe they're ever going to get dementia. Most 50 year olds don't believe they're ever going to get, maybe if they're a caregiver for their mom or dad for a few years, okay, maybe they'll, maybe they'll be our first clients, but um, the earlier, the better. Mm -hmm. And I, and I predict where drugs will be useful is when we do screening tests at age 30 
and we'll start to find some biomarkers. Maybe some of the biomarkers will be things we haven't decided on yet. There's several being tried in research right now, but we'll find biomarkers at age 30 and 35 and 40. And when they become abnormal, pointing to risk of dementia, you may take a drug then to prevent the beginning of what mm -hmm. the dementia process is, the, the physiology that leads to dementia 20 or 30 years hence. Mm -hmm. And you may take another drug at 40 when another risk factor pops up uh, and they'll invent new uh, biomarkers for risk as mm -hmm. time goes on. And that's where drugs like aducanumab will probably be useful before the, the, the barn is already burned down. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's good. Are there other examples of, of less well-known or less discussed in, in public risk factors that people should be aware of that you want to share? Well, any infection. So there are people who have chronic uh, herpes on their mouth, mm -hmm. you know, cold sores. Mm -hmm. And the word herpes has a pejorative connotation, as you know, but herpes simplex, what causes cold sores is fairly common. And that virus lives in your body and actually can be in your brain. <clears throat> you know, when I was in medical school, we were taught that your brain is either sterile or you are in the process of dying from meningitis, one mm -hmm. or the other. But there are germs living coincidentally in our brains, fungus, mm -hmm. bacteria, viruses, probably rickettsia, uh, but in detente, where the brain holds them off at arm's length. The, the germ may create a little shell around itself, a little membrane to protect itself. But herpes uh, simplex, um, chickenpox, you know, people get shingles, recurrences of shingles. That virus is in your body and associated with your central nervous system and the ganglion around your spine. <clears throat> and um, I strongly believe that if someone has recurrences of shingles or um, cold sores, that they should be treated vigorously with antivirals it, when that would occur. I know that some doctors are fairly cavalier. They'll say, oh, your shingles rash isn't too bad. But in a 72-year-old person with mild cognitive dysfunction, mild cognitive impairment, I would treat that right away. And mm -hmm. there are studies where they, they actually had a few people improve in their cognitive scores after they took antivirals. So we didn't learn any of that in medical school. We, we were taught that the brain is sterile. It's always sterile. So, and then there's a germ in your mouth. About a fourth of us carry uh, uh, Porphyromonas gingivalis, a, a bacteria in our, in our mouth, in our gums. Uh, and there's several variants like that. There's even another germ very similar to that, that our dogs can carry, and we can catch it from the dog. Well, about a fourth of us carry it in our mouth, but um, when you analyze the brain for uh, this germ mm -hmm. in autopsies of people dying with Alzheimer's, it's almost always there. And the chemical that it secretes called gingipanes is there almost mm -hmm. in every, every time they look for it when someone died with Alzheimer's, when it was proven to be Alzheimer's. So it doesn't mean that every case is due to uh, ginger pains, but in uh, lab animals, the mm -hmm. ginger pains causes damage to the brain and cognitive dysfunction. And when you block the ginger pains, the cognitive dysfunction stops. Uh, pretty dramatic stuff. I mean, and you don't hear about ginger pain gum that neutralizes ginger pains 
or mouthwash that kills Porphyromonas gingivalis, partly because if you sterilize the germs in your mouth, you won't do well. Those germs are there for a reason. Uh-huh. The problem is which ones are good and which ones are not so good. Well, and then we always hear about, you know, we're hearing more and more about the gut and, you know, is that balanced or not? Can you speak to that in, in terms of dementia? You know, they have two week seminars where they go 10 hours a day for mm-hmm. two weeks talking about the microbiome. Well, there's a microbiome in your gut. There's a microbiome on your skin. There's a microbiome in your blood. There's a microbiome in your mouth. I mean, there's a microbiome in your nose, in your eyes. Certain germs that we live with commensally. In other words, they don't kill us. We don't kill them. Mm-hmm. They actually help us. So we have about 20,000 genes. But the germs we carry in our intestine have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of genes that can produce chemicals that we use. Not only do we use them, we need them. That the bacteria in your intestine or other germs Mm-hmm. actually create the chemical that you need. And a lot of it goes directly to brain function. So okay. neurotransmitter substances and the like. And it's thought that some of it is blood-borne. Some chemicals mm-hmm. can get through the blood-brain barrier and into the, into the brain. But they also thought that it actually goes up the vagus nerve, which comes from the brain, the 10th cranial nerve, into the gut and the stomach and the GI uh, tract. And it goes directly up the vagus nerve. I mean, who would have thought that? We didn't learn any of that when I went to medical school. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is all new stuff. And then there's the good germs and the bad germs. Mm-hmm. So you want to eat the prebiotic foods that feed the good germs. Mm-hmm. And every time you take a non anti-inflammatory like Motrin or Anaprox, you're killing good germs. Every time you have an artificial sweetener, some are worse than others. You're killing the good germs. Every time you take an antibiotic, <clears throat> when you take an antibiotic for 10 days, it may take a year or more for the germs to straighten out after that, after one wow. round of antibiotics. Now, when you're dying of pneumonia, you need antibiotics. Mm-hmm. But every time you get a cold or a sore throat, you know, and your tests are negative, you probably don't need an antibiotic every single time. But it takes a year maybe to get readjusted. You can help the good germs by feeding them prebiotics, certain foods that aren't digested until they get to where the good germs are hanging out in your gut. And then mm-hmm. they feast on that and make more of the chemicals that you need, like neurotransmitters, so you don't get depression. Who would have thought that germs in your intestine could dictate whether you get depression? I mean, we never learn anything like that. That's, that would have been, we would have thought you were crazy to talk like that. But the germs in our intestine can make Uh, chemicals that are beneficial they can Mm -hmm. the other ones the bad ones can make chemicals that aren't beneficial or can inhibit absorption or creation of something that is good so there's this battle going on all the time in your intestine the good germs and the bad germs you feed the uh the good germs with prebiotics uh Mm -hmm. if you had to take an antibiotic for a while you can take probiotics which are actually literally good germs Mm -hmm. and a good mixture is the best. Um, But it's a huge area of medicine that's going to get more and more press. Uh, It's, it's huge. And what happens is people, 
the germs can actually create little openings between the cells of your intestines such that you absorb stuff from your gut that you're not supposed to absorb. Mm -hmm. Your body's immune defenses come to attention and start making tons of antibodies to all this lipopolysaccharides junk <clears throat> that's getting through these little holes created by the bad germs in your intestine. Unfortunately, those antibodies cross-react with your kidney or your heart or your T cells or some other part of your body, and you have autoimmune damage, autoimmune disease. Okay. Well, you know, I, I liked even just the way you described the antibiotics, because I mean, we all were used to going to the doctor and they'd give us an antibiotic. You know, I'm sick, I'll be 63 in a couple of months. So, I mean, that was just how I grew up. You got sick, they gave you an antibiotic. And now you go in and they're like, oh no, but no one tells you why, mm -hmm. you know? And when you said it can take up to a year to build that back, it was like, well, okay, well, why isn't anybody saying that, you know, to make sense to us other than, you know, it, it just, it wasn't a good thing, you know, for them to, to give that to us. And the, other th the other thing people, you know, years and years ago, like thousand years ago, humans consumed way more fiber in their mm -hmm. diet like 70 grams. Most Americans barely get over 15 grams of fiber a day, mm -hmm. way less fiber. And the germs in your gut are going to be just loving it if you got 70 grams of fiber. Although don't jump to 70, milligra 70 milligrams a day right away, but work your <laughs> way up to it gradually or you have a hard time. But um, ha having enough fiber is a big issue and there just isn't enough fiber in our processed foods. Mm-hmm. And processed foods is a huge, huge problem. <clears throat> in our three-hour evaluations, I bet we spend at least one hour on food and specifics on food. Mm -hmm. That's how important it is. Well, speaking of food, I want, I want you to give a little plug for your, your dementia summit that's coming up with Dr. Dale Brennison. Yeah, uh, next, uh, a week from Thursday on the 12th of May in St. Cloud at the Paramount Center for the Arts. We're going to have in person. We're also going to have online. If you would rather do a virtual, you could do it either way. Uh, we have about 100 people signed up already for in person and about uh, almost 200 online. So there's a lot of people checking it out. But Dr. Dale Bredesen, an internationally acclaimed expert, uh, is going to be speaking uh, two uh, one hour um, presentations. And our last hour will be uh, questions from the audience, both the virtual and the in-person, uh, with some panelists asking the questions directly to Dr. Bredesen, who will be uh, appearing virtually from California. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to I'm really going to try to be up there in person. Oh, cool. Um, I got it on my calendar. Unless unless everything goes haywire, I'm, I'm planning on driving up there because I think it would be would be it would just be fun to see all you guys and in, in what you're up to and um and things so people can go to your website to register right. and that is dcan dcan-mn.org dcan-mn.org or they can email you at contact at dcan-mn.org you're also right. listed under uh, on linkedin under Central Minnesota Dementia Community Action Network. People can find you there, or you can always call them too. And that number is 
640-6726. And that's their main number. And then if you're interested in scheduling an appointment, you can talk to Tammy at 320-640-6695. Or you can email her directly as well at T. And then her last name is K-O-L. B-I-N-G-E-R at decan-mn.org. And I want to also, Dr. Zook, just thank you for being part of Dementia Map too and joining us on that global mission to connect people to resources, products, and tools. I think you guys are doing amazing work. And I, I love how you're how you're looking at this big picture and attacking it on a really an individual basis and really customizing things for people. Well, your dementia map is quite amazing as well. Um, I don't know if that came out of your brain or your partner's, but oh my gosh, it is just uh, awesome, uh, awesome the way it works. Yeah, that's been a vision of mine since, you know, since my mom got diagnosed and she's been gone since 2014. So uh, and lived with it for 30 years, but we were just so lost as a family. And Dave, my partner, uh, who has the, the memory cafe directories for um, five different countries, he's the tech guru that laid it out really simply and, and beautifully. Uh, and so it's been really, uh, it's been fun to see it come to life. And, you know, we're just going to keep, keep growing it. Everyone is welcome, you know, to be part of that. And, um, Again, we just were so thankful you guys are part of it because you're, you know, you're, you're stepping up and doing something different that needs to be done. And I think that that is really inspiring for so many people to see and hear. Well, our mission is to improve access to quality dementia care in our community and our community can be as big as it needs to be. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for your time. Again, really appreciate you being with us. And I look forward to seeing you um, in St. Cloud on the 12th. Yeah, well, come up and uh, rattle my chains. So I'll, I'll be kind of nervous that day. Okay. <laughs> they didn't teach us how to do this stuff in medical school. So, <laughs> Well, you're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. So uh, thanks again. And to our listeners, please like, click and share, you know, spread the word that, you know, there's hope on the, uh, on the horizon. And there are physicians and people out there that, that get it. And they want to, they want to deliver services differently and really help you understand what this is about and what you can do to live better alongside dementia. Like, like Dr. Zook said, we can't make it go away, but you know, we can maybe control some symptoms and slow it down. And you know, that buys a lot of time, buys a lot of time. So thank you. Yep. Well, thank you, Laurie. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye now.